you can open up your Bible to Mark chapter 3. We are in the middle of a series right now in Mark 3, and it's called Three Questions I Want to Ask Jesus. And this is the third and final message in that little mini-series, and then we'll pick back up with something probably topical next week for Mother's Day. But the uh, question that we're asking this morning is this, what happened to my family? What happened to my family? And I believe that Jesus in this passage is going to answer that question. Once upon a time, I worked uh, at a large church for a children's ministry, and I would frequently team up with another leader, another pastor, and we would counsel children. And one of the questions that he would often put to these kids was this. He would say, tell me about your family. And you know, kids betray their emotion very quickly, and their face would say it all. Their face would say it all. For many, the word family, it it represents a place of tremendous pain, doesn't it? And profound disappointment. Even for some of you sitting out there, that word family represents that to you. Maybe even right now. Maybe it's a place where there's bitter conflict over money, there's resentment and arguments. Maybe there's a split, maybe there's a divorce, there's this wrangling over custody. There's no peace, there's no joy, arguments over money, division. Maybe there's an unexpected death, there's just sadness. For others, it's a place where there is intense anxiety. A place where you really feel like you have to walk on eggshells. There's this unpredictability about it. Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be in a good mood? Is he going to be high? Is he going to be drunk or sober? For many people, that's the reality of their family. They go home to that every day. Or maybe they don't go home. Maybe they go anywhere but home. Maybe home to them is a place where they eat and they sleep, but it's not, it's, it's not a family. Maybe there's abuse. Maybe there's neglect. There's lots of pressure to put on a facade Behind this fragile smile is just intense heartache and profound sinfulness. There's no love. There's no compassion. But for some, family is its just an empty chase. It is. It's an elusive dream. It's something maybe they've hunted after and sought after all their life, but they've never found. They've never found what our culture would call true family, something they prayed for, but they've never found real companionship or relationship. And for others, it's a place where you take your faith and there's persecution there. Maybe people in your family ridicule you or mock your faith, make fun of your worldview. Maybe they think your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor or that you're a Jesus freak. For some of you, that may not be the case at all. Maybe you just never really had much of a family. Maybe it was a harsh place. Maybe you had a rigid upbringing. Maybe there was legalism. Maybe you had insecure, overbearing, hovering parents just monitoring every move, every decision you made. Or maybe your kids are gone now and it's an empty nest. Maybe they don't call on Mother's Day. They don't send a card. Maybe they've unfriended you on Facebook. The full gamut's probably represented, even in a crowd this small. What happened to your family? Do you remember the movie Les Mis? There's a song in there uh, called I Dreamed a Dream. There's a line that always struck me. I'm not going to sing it, okay? So don't worry about that. (laughs) My wife gets on to me every time I sing up here. I can't hardly help myself sometimes. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Maybe for a lot of people, family looked great on paper, but reality hit hard. And life killed their dream, and it's become 
really a hell for them. That's reality for more people than we know. But listen, Jesus has good news for you this morning. He does. This is a passage that I think is going to cultivate great hope and clarity in our thinking about who Christ is and what the church is. Jesus is going to give us a warning, an encouragement, and an invitation. A warning, an encouragement, and an invitation. So just real quick, let's, let's, uh, let's look back at chapter 3. And I want to start, this is what I would call a, a sandwich, okay? And, and the gospel writer, Mark, does this frequently. I don't know why he does it sometimes. He just does it. He starts a story, and there's an interruption, and then he finishes the story. But look in, in verse 20 and 21. Then he, that is Jesus, and by the way, you can turn your bulletins over and find the text there if you didn't bring a Bible. We're in Mark chapter 3, second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Chapter 3, verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, he's talk, they're talking about here, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then skip down to verse 31. This is the sandwich. There's the bread, the meat, and now here comes back to the, to the bread. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, here's the warning, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus is warning all of us here to not idolize your family. That's the warning. Don't idolize your family, either the one you have or the one you want to have. Don't idolize your family. Don't worship your family. That's a warning here. Now, this is awkward, guys. i got to be honest with you. This whole passage is awkward, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to feel this awkwardness as we read this. Mark is writing to Romans, okay? And there's a certain religion that really centers and, and is enculturated around Rome, okay, that has really elevated the family of Jesus, particularly his mother. Mark is writing to Roman Gentile uh, people, and this is one of the only times he ever mentions the mother of Jesus, and it is very unflattering, very unflattering. She wants to baker act her son pretty much, okay? She thinks that Jesus has absolutely lost his marbles, He's beside himself. That's what that word means. Back in verse 20 and 21, they went to seize him because they thought he's beside himself. He's lost it. I don't know who this is. It's not my son, though. I don't know what happened to him. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's not taking care of himself. The religious leaders were calling him demonic, saying he had a demon. The only reason he was able to successfully cast out demons was because Satan had empowered him. Yeah, his family was worried about, about Jesus. This is awkward, and this is a little bit troubling. Think about it. Jesus is teaching. His disciples are around him. Somebody comes, and they say, Jesus, awkward silence. Your mom's outside. She wants you to come out there. I mean, <laughs> you're in your 30s, Okay. I bet the room got really quiet, and they're thinking, ooh, that's the mother of Jesus. What's he going to say here? They're ready to intervene, aren't they? This is a little family intervention is what this is. And this is a little bit troubling when you read this, because the level of misunderstanding that Jesus' family had, those close to him, was pretty significant, don't you think? I mean, this is the classic passage that I think C.S. Lewis probably had in mind 
when he said there's only three takeaways for who Jesus is. You either say he's a liar, which the scribes did. They said he had a, a demon. Or you say he's a lunatic. That's his family. Or you say he's the Lord. And that's the disciples sitting around him at his feet listening to him. But there's no, there's no other option, really. This is very awkward. They came to seize him. Do you know that word means arrest? It means, it means to lay hold of somebody. Same word used when they came to capture Jesus in the garden. Same word used when Herod arrested John the Baptist and had him beheaded. Jesus' family, are, they've heard the rumors swirling around. Jesus is he's doing some crazy things. He's making some crazy claims. So they're like 30 miles up at Nazareth, and they travel all the way down with the intention to interrupt Jesus' mission, lay hold of him, probably Baker Act him and take him back and let him calm down and say, Jesus, you need to take it easy. This is getting out of control here. You need to eat something. You need to take better care of yourself. Those closest to Jesus are actually opposing him. Isn't that interesting here? And we're not talking about the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sanhedrin. This is his mother and his brothers. And by the way, I don't want to give too many parenthetical interruptions. This whole thing about Mary was a perpetual virgin. Guys, I mean, we're, we're Bible people here. We believe the Bible. What's it say here? He had brothers. He also had sisters, another passage says. And the only time Mark ever mentions Mary, um, she thinks her son's beside himself. He's off his rocker. So let's not elevate our family or the family of Jesus either, okay, to a place of unhealthy idolatry. No idolatry is healthy, but for that matter. These are people who are familiar with Jesus, but they're not with him. This family is related to him by blood, but not by faith. So verses 20 and 21 tell us what Jesus' family is hoping to accomplish when they come. They want him to stop. There's nothing like a little family intervention to interrupt God's plan to redeem the world, is there? <laughs> Aren't you thankful that Jesus stopped this when he did and said what he said? Jesus, you got to admire this. Every interruption Jesus takes is an opportunity to point us back to the gospel. I just love that. I want to learn from Christ. I want to do that. I see drama and interruptions as distractions and hopelessly get off track. Jesus says, I'm just going to preach the gospel. That's what he does. That's what I want to do. Now, everyone looked to Jesus to see what he would say. And what he said shocked everyone, I promise you. You could not say anything more shocking in that scenario in the Middle East, in ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern times, when family was everything. It was everything. If you didn't have a family, you were an outsider, an outcast. You had no hope of perpetuating the family line, no inheritance, no heir, none of those things. And Jesus put his family, and he puts our family too, our blood families in their place, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Their jaws probably hit the ground. He is warning us, do not idolize your family. Don't worship them. Don't make your family an ultimate thing. Because that will break your family and it will break you. It will. It happens all the time. You'll break your family if you worship your family. And if you look at the stats today in America, the family is not doing well doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what's happening. People are putting such unrealistic expectations on the family. Way too much pressure. They expect the family and marriages to solve all of our ills, to solve all of our problems, to meet all of our hopes, satisfy all of our longings. And listen, nothing can do that except one person. Not your family and not my family. 
There is a journalist, his name's Andrew Sullivan, and he says something really interesting in an article I read. He said this, churches are the culture's primary and obsessive propagandist for the marital unit, and its capacity to solve and resolve all human ills and satisfy all human needs. Isn't that interesting? Here's an outsider looking at what the church is saying and saying the church is, is misleading people. It's holding up the family instead of Christ as if the family is able to satisfy our longings, meet our needs, and be our Savior. And listen, the family is a poor Savior, guys. Some people need saving from their family. He goes on to say this. Listen, this is so good, so helpful. Families and marriages fail too often because they are trying to answer too many human needs. A spouse is required to be a lover, a friend, a mother, a father, a soulmate, a co-worker, and so on. This writer says, he's not a Christian, he says, few people can be all these things for one person. I would disagree. Nobody can be all those things for one person except Jesus. And when demands are set too high, disappointment can only follow. This is a warning against idolatry. And listen, guys, idolatry is taking something, anything, a person, a thing, an object, usually something good, and perverting it and twisting it and making it our ultimate hope and satisfaction, trying to squeeze all the satisfaction in life out of that when it was never intended to carry the weight of our worship. Only Jesus can do that. That's what idolatry is. Finding something or someone, being really impressed by it, something we thought would make us happy, money, sex, a relationship, a position, a family, a raise, and we examine it, we lean on it a little bit, we test it, we test our weight, seems to be good, we start respecting it a little more, we put a little, little more weight, then we throw our entire soul on it, and what happens? Crash. It breaks and we break too, because listen... It wasn't God, and everything crumbles under the weight of our worship, except God. That's true. Here's an illustration. Back in 2001, in August, the singing sensation Aaliyah was killed in a plane crash in Florida. You remember this? She was 22 years old, up-and-coming actress and singer, talented off the charts, and she was filming her latest music video in the Bahamas. And a little Cessna twin-engine airplane carried her and eight other crew members over there, and they filmed, and they were in a hurry to get back. They were in a hurry to get back, and the plane crashed just 200 feet off the runway. It took a nosedive, 50 feet, burst into flames, and exploded and killed all of them instantly. Now, her fans and her family, they wanted answers. What happened? How could this happen? Well, it turns out that just before the takeoff, a heated argument broke out that somebody overheard. It was between the pilot and the members of the crew. A fellow pilot overheard this. They were flying back from the Bahamas to Miami, and the plane that was going to carry them back was smaller than the one that brought them over there. I don't know much about planes. I think one was a 404 and the other one was a 402. Mark, you can probably give me clarity on that when I'm done here. But the pilot was concerned that the, uh, the weight limit was exceeding Equipment, fuel, luggage, nine crew members, including a bodyguard who weighed over 300 pounds. That's probably not a good combination there. But the crew insisted, we chartered this plane, we paid for this plane, we need to get back. Probably offered a little bonus on the side and the pilot gave in. Witnesses say that it climbed to about 50 feet before it burst into flames and she was killed instantly. 
Now, according to one report, this airplane was overloaded by 700 pounds. The pilot knew it. The crew knew it. And as the story developed, even the baggage handlers knew it. They were arguing with the crew saying, you're trying to take too much stuff with you. This little plane cannot handle that. It's way over the, the limit. So it was tragic. It was no survivors. The plane broke. The crew broke. The luggage broke. Everything was lost. Tragic. But I suggest to you that there's parallels. When we try to make anything carry the load of our worship, the same thing happens. We break and it breaks. And listen, the reason God commands us to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, it's not because God is some kind of egomaniac, guys. It's because he knows that anything that we love more than him will betray us. It will. You elevate your family to the place where Christ alone is to occupy. You dethrone him and enthrone your family. It's going to betray you, and you're going to break your family. You're going to break your kids. You're going to break your spouse, and you're going to break yourself. And I think Jesus is saying something here that we really need to heed. He's saying, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, Jesus is not ditching his family here. Jesus loved his family. His mother changed his diapers growing up. She fed him. He depended on her and Joseph. He loved his siblings. He warned them. He preached the gospel to them often. Hanging on the cross, he told the apostle John, behold your mother and mother, behold your son. He's not ditching them. He's just putting them in, his, in their place. That's all he's doing, and it's loving for him to do that. He's saying, look, family is a signpost pointing to something greater. It's not the destination. It's just a sign saying this way. This is what God's love is like. This is what community is like. Don't mistake this for what Christ alone is able to offer you. The church in Ephesians 3 is referred as to as a family, a household. Listen to Paul. He said, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Psalm 2710 says, when my father and my mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. All those are pointing to the realities that eventually our family can't meet our expectations. Our blood family can. God never intended for it to. He says, who are my mother and my brother? You know what he says? He says, mom, I'm in the middle of a home group here. I'm leading my home group. You guys can come in, but I'm not going out there. Jesus flips society expectations on its head, and I love that. He always does that because he's teaching people. He's teaching people. He is saying that spiritual relationship is much more important than blood relationship. It's true. Blood is thicker than water, but listen, faith is thicker than blood. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Family ties are not the only ties, and they're not even the most important, guys. It's the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual relationship we have with Christ and with one another. What is some application for Grace Life? I think one takeaway is this, and I want to say this really lovingly and carefully because I'm really thankful the culture that God has given this church, that you take advantage of all the means of discipleship we offer. And look, we don't have a whole lot. We've told you from, from day one, this is not going to be the church with a thousand ministries and we meet 20 times throughout the week. We can't do that. We don't have a budget for that. It costs money to rent this building. We just rent it for two hours on Sunday morning, and that's the biggest event we have in the week. And the other one is home group. But I think some loving application here would be this. If your family, you've so elevated your family to a place where you are consistently taking yourselves out of those rhythms, I would call them, and seasons of discipleship, I would say you're, God has shown you your priorities are not lining up with what Scripture teaches us. They're not. 
if consistently you're absent, you're out of fellowship, you're not in the process of discipleship that this church offers, and you're not in anybody else's. Guys, that's a big problem. That's a dangerous trend. And listen, it's hard to get back out of that. I know that it is because I've been in it before, and I've talked to people who are in it. Habits are powerful things. When you form them, they're very challenging to break. That's the way God made us. That's the way he wired us. People say, family time. Okay, I get it. I've been busy. I, hey, I've been busy too. I understand. I'm working late. I get it. I know. I know, but listen, guys, God didn't just put us here to get a paycheck and make babies. Isn't there more to life than that? Isn't there? I mean, if that's it, let's just sleep in. We don't have to pay rent here. Jeff and I can figure something else to do, right? First is a warning. Jesus, Jesus gives us a warning. Don't worship your family. Second, secondly, he encourages us. This is a great encouragement. Consider our family. First is don't worship your family. And second is consider our family. And that is consider the church. Look what he says here. First he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, and in Greek it actually says, behold, here are my mother and my brothers. Guys, if, we, if God will just help us wrap our minds around this, I want to ask you a question. How do you think those misfit disciples felt when the Son of God made that declaration over them? How do you think that made them feel? Do you realize the people that Jesus accumulated and, and, and called alongside him to follow him, do you realize most of them were rejects? They were social outcasts. They were the down and outers. They were uneducated. Many of them were probably illiterate. They weren't scribes. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't, they weren't rabbis. Jesus just broke the societal expectations. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his mother and his brothers, probably his sisters, say, Jesus, we need you out here. Can you imagine what a tremendous encouragement it was to hear and see Jesus look at them? And he gestured with his hand and he said, behold, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Man, I'm telling you, that is a powerful declaration right from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. How do you think they felt hearing Jesus say, you are my family? You are my family. You are more important to me than that relationship. Wow. That's pretty staggering, guys, to consider that. And it's so true. You think they were scared that Jesus was probably going to leave them and go back to Nazareth? He didn't. He stayed right there. He said, you can come in here, but I'm not going out there. I'm telling you, that was turning society on its head. Because listen, the crowds were inside and Jesus' family was outside. You know how opposite that was? Normally, the blood family would be inside. The crowds would be outside trying to get your attention. Jesus flipped that like he does everything else. This is upside down. Everything about Jesus, his following, his discipleship process, and his kingdom is upside down. He flips it. Or maybe he puts it right side up right? It's the way God intended for it to be all along. And look, this is, this is not, behold, my second cousins, Uncle Frank. This is brothers. This is like immediate family. Immediate family. This is something that death can't destroy, guys. Think about that. Suffering only strengthens this. That's what the church is. That's the kind of family that the church is. This is the family you've always wanted. But listen, it's not perfect. Jesus never said it would be perfect, did he? He's encouraging you to consider our family, but it's not perfect. We say this often, 
This is not a museum where we have eminent Christians on display with halos around their head. It's a hospital where sinners come and they recover. But listen, it is a hospital, and the goal of checking in a hospital is to get better and leave stronger, right? It's a place of grace. It's a place where you can come and grow, and we do it better together. We do better when we evangelize together, when we suffer together, when we rejoice together, when we consider the depths of Christ's love together, the Bible says. This is the family you've always wanted. Do you think, I heard a lady at a, at a conference the other day, and she said she thinks that Western people in particular, and American men, no, Western, Westerners in general, and American men in particular, suffer from deprivation of affection. And she was Australian, and she talked about, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss? Yuck, kind of yuck, right? She talked about in Australia and in Jewish societies that her husband is Jewish, and he would embrace his father, and they would kiss each other on the lip and exchange slobber. And she said, yeah, that group, people are, ooh. And she said, I get it. You guys are American men. You're the most touch-deprived. That's kind of weird. She said, you're the most touch-deprived people probably on the face of the planet. And one of the applications of that is people are so starving for affection and for acceptance and to be welcome and to be part of something bigger than themselves. Do you know that cults thrive in that kind of environment? Have you ever wondered how do cults do what they do? What is the draw? How could somebody like Charles Manson create this family out in the desert and he made the claim he was Jesus Christ reincarnate? I don't know how he got away with that. Jesus didn't need to be reincarnated. He's already resurrected. But his family followed him blindly. It was because they were all, they all came from broken families. They were all disenfranchised, wounded, hurt, abused, neglected. And they were starving for what Jesus offers, but Charles Manson offered it through his family. And that's the allure of cults. Charles Manson did it. Jim Jones did it. Remember 800 people at Jonestown? Committed suicide together. One person called it massive homicide rather than suicide. But that's the allure of cults. My mom sent me an article two years ago. And she said, you save this, you're going to use it one day. And the day has finally come. <laughs> Did you know that there is a thriving business in Northwest America called Cuddling? You can't make this stuff up, guys. It's, there's a business called Cuddle Connection. And for $1 a minute... $60 an hour, you can pay somebody you've never met in your life, and they will cuddle up next to you and just lay beside you. It's legit. It's, it's non-sexual. You leave your clothes on, but you cuddle for an hour with a complete stranger, and you pay them for it. Now, it's easy to laugh and dismiss that, but guys, listen, we live in a nation where people think they're connected, but they've never been more disconnected in the history of the planet Earth, ever. People are, and Jesus says, look, this is the family you've always wanted. It's not a perfect family, but it's a family that's united with love. There's this mystical union with Christ that holds us all together. That was true of the early church in Acts chapter 2. They were together. They had all things in common, and the world sat up and took notice. They won favor with all the people. People could not understand how in the world all these people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different race, different gender, different worldviews, came together, were united under the banner of Christ, and built this church. They couldn't understand it. People still can't understand it. What's going on in here that defies the world? They cannot understand this. A community where you belong, where people love you and you love them back, where you receive care and you give care, 
where you belong and you believe. No more pretending, no more posturing. Authenticity, people who won't exploit you, they'll protect you. That's what the church is supposed to be. People who won't betray you. This is a special relationship here, this is, that just transcends the things that unite other people in our culture, transcends all those things. You know, I read a book by Stephen Ambrose. I read two books by him, actually. One was called A Band of Brothers. It was turned into an HBO series that maybe some of you watched. Really well done. Steven Spielberg did it with Tom Hanks, I think. And another book was called Citizen Soldiers, and he writes about... um, He writes about World War II, and he talks about these band of brothers who were in a platoon together. They were in Easy Company, and these guys did several jumps together. They did several different campaigns. They trained together. They had been together a long time, and what would happen is these guys would go to war, and they would get injured so bad they would have to get sent to a hospital in Holland, and he says that some of these men would go go AWOL. I just learned the other day that that means uh, absent without leave. Okay, you disappear, but it's an unofficial, uh, nobody knows where you went. You weren't given permission necessary to leave. They would be in a hospital. They, weren't be, they wouldn't be fully healed yet, and they would go missing. And I read that, and I thought, those cowards, they're just trying to get out of the war. But that's not what happened at all. Do you know what happened? These men, rather than risk being rejoined to a unit that were complete strangers to them, they risked their own help, jeopardized Wounds that weren't fully healed so they could go and rejoin their platoon because they did not want to fight alongside strangers. They wanted to be reunited with the men that they had sweated with and bled with and fought together with. It's really interesting the bonds that war creates in men. One of those men's name was, was David Webster. And I want, to read, I want to read a quote from that book. Check this out. Because he left the hospital, he rejoined his unit, and he was so happy. He could have got out of fighting. He didn't want to. He wanted to go and rejoin the men that he trained with. He said this, It was good to be back with fellows I knew and could trust. I felt warm and relaxed inside, like a lost child who has returned to a bright home full of love after wandering in a cold black forest. You felt like part of a big family. You are closer to these men than you will ever be to any civilians. Our relationship was closer than that of brothers, different from those of lovers, stronger and deeper than those of friends. Men would literally insist on going hungry for one another, freezing for one another, dying for one another. It was a mystical union. And then the writer, Stephen Ambrose, says this, I have interviewed hundreds of soldiers from World War II, American, British, Canadian, German, French, ranging from the supreme commander of the Allied force to the lowest privates. Virtually without exception, they tell me that their closest friends, the men from whom they kept no secrets, the men with whom they would gladly share their last piece of bread, the men they named their children after, are the men with whom they served in war. The typical squad is made up of a Jew from New York, an Indian from Montana, a Swede from Minnesota, a Pole from Chicago, a Cajun from New Orleans, and so on. At the beginning, they hate one another. The shared misery of training pulls them together, as does the common hatred of their drill instructors, of course, and junior officers. Combat strengthens the bond to the point that they become a band of brothers, trusting and loving one another as they had never before trusted or loved anyone. And you know what? I think the church should be a lot like that, shouldn't it? Especially, and I'm telling you right now, guys, I believe persecution is coming to the American church. 
I believe it is coming. I don't long for it, but I know that God will use it to strengthen the body of Christ. And I think that churches will be stronger than they've ever been when it comes. And if listen, if God's will is for us to be the persecuted minority in America, then so be it. May his will be done. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's never been a greater time to proclaim the gospel. I believe that with all my heart. And I want God to use grace life to do that, to reach these people. And I know you do too. We are better, we're stronger, and we're more effective Christians together in the family that God has created by his death, burial and resurrection. And as much as the world pushes you to be by yourself, for yourself, and about yourself, we know that doesn't work, guys. It doesn't work. There are no long rangers in Christianity. You cannot live in extreme isolation from one another and not suffer from it. Now listen, this is another point of application I want to make, and I want you to hear me on this, okay? This is so important. This is a beautiful reminder. Ed Shaw wrote a book. He suffers from same-sex attraction. He will not call himself a homosexual because he says that is not his identity. That is not his identity. He struggles with being attracted um, to men instead of women, but he says, I resist that temptation. I ask God to help me, and I have committed myself to a, a life of celibacy. He says, I will never marry. God hasn't changed. Uh, my heart and give me a desire for women. And he wrote a book, and it's very fascinating. This is one of the things that he says in this book. He says, if our churches put as much time and energy into prompting good friendships as they do good marriages, life would be much easier for people like me, and interestingly, much better for everyone else too. It's an interesting quote, guys. And listen, that hits home with me because I have somebody in my circle of friends who is a gay man, and I love him. And he's my friend, and I care very deeply about him. And he's one of the nicest people that you would ever meet. But he is pursuing a homosexual lifestyle that is sinful in the eyes of the Lord. It's sinful in Scripture. And he's pursuing that all out. And I'm sure that the prospect of living without a family is pretty scary for him. I think that's actually what drives him to involve himself in the community he's in to the extent that he does. He wants relationship. He craves companionship. And listen, the current lifestyle that he is pursuing scratches that itch for him, so he pursues it. He's part of a community that shares his worldview. Now listen, is that a sinful lifestyle? Absolutely it is. In fact, I wanted to mention this last week. I didn't mention suicide and I didn't mention homosexuality because the question was, can God forgive any sin? Absolutely he can, he will, he delights to. The Bible is very clear. It says, the unrighteous, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then it gives a long list, doesn't isolate any one sin, but it says, those who practice homosexuality, liars, adulterers, thieves, swindlers, and then it says this in 1 Corinthians 6, one of the most beautiful declarations in the Bible, it says, and such what were some of you, but you were justified, you were washed, and you were sanctified by Christ. So here's my point here. Will God forgive him? Yes. Can God forgive those who practice homosexuality? Absolutely. He has to if there's any hope. Definitely. But consider this. Is this the kind of community where a man like my friend, if he repents of his sin and he sees, you know what? I'm going to have to commit um, my life to a life of singleness. I'm not going to give in to that temptation. I'm going to say no. But maybe his struggle is of the kind that God's not going to give him a spouse. Listen, is this the kind of community where that guy is going to feel like an outcast? Are we always going to be trying to play Cupid with people like him that come here? Or is this going to be a family who welcomes him, who helps him, 
who strengthens him, who holds him accountable. That's very important. And listen, guys, for that matter, what about divorced people? What about people that are single, that are in this church, or that are attracted to this church? Are we going to play Cupid every time somebody shows up single and, and treat them like they're broken and a family is going to fix them? Or are we going to welcome them into God's family? Because this is his family and we are all together. We help one another. We love one another. We hold one another accountable. And we forgive one another. And we, listen, we need one another. I think it was Melissa that told me she went to a conference last week and there was... There was a speaker, and he was very gracious, but he was sharing, now look, I know I have some controversial views, and there are some celebrity pastors who don't really care much for me, and, and they've made their, their concerns about me made known public, but, but he, he considered those secondary issues. They weren't gospel issues, and so he said this. He says, but listen, they are mine, and I am theirs. There, sorry, that's my Arkansan accent. He says, and I am yours, and you are mine. That's the promise that the Bible holds out. We belong to one another because we belong to God and he belongs to us. This is the family. It's the family. That's the encouragement that Jesus Christ holds out. Can they belong here? Jesus says they can and I agree with them. So the first was a warning. Don't idolize the family. Don't worship the family. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Secondly, it's an encouragement. Consider our family. Behold, my brothers, my mother, my sister, and last is an invitation. Last is an invitation from Jesus to join his family. And this is the best promise at all, guys. Look at this. Here are my mother and my brothers. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus includes the, the feminine here for, for sister. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left out. Everybody's included here. This is so counterintuitive. Like I said, he's, he is absolutely flipping the norms here. That sounds great. So what do you have to do to be in God's family? Jesus is inviting you to be part of it. What do you have to do? You have to embrace God's will for your life. What is the will of God? Have you ever thought of, about that deeply? What is it exactly that God wants from me? We've talked about that at length before, haven't we? Do you know what the first thing, if you're going to come up with this list of God's divine will for you, Every single person in this room, you know what it is? Believe in Christ. It is to believe in Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the first message Jesus came declaring was this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's God's will, guys, in a nutshell. Everything else flows out of that. Everything else flows out of that. That's the power to do everything else that God commands. Believe in Christ. You're in his family. It's really easy to get in God's kingdom on paper, isn't it? Believe the gospel. Turn from your sins, and you're in. You're in. That is the will of God. That's what it means to be with him, to believe his message, and to join him in his mission. That's what all the people, it's really interesting. If you look at this scenario, what are all these people doing? If you're like, well, how can I be a part of your family? All these people are sitting at the feet of Christ, and they're listening to him. And when they're done, they're going to go, and they're going to obey him because they know he's loved them. He's forgiven them. And that's his will for them to believe him and follow him. It's very simple. Sometimes we can make that really complicated. And look, I got a confession to make. Okay, don't think any less of me. We can be honest in here, can't we? Since I was a little kid, I have been absolutely infatuated with the mafia. 
I'm just keeping it real, guys. I'm sorry. I know they have done unspeakable acts. I know that. I get that. And maybe I've been Hollywoodized. Maybe Hollywood has made the lifestyle of a mafia so glamorous that it eclipses the horror and the sin and the death behind it. But I had just been infatuated. And I think one of the reasons why is that you just see, I always saw mafia leaders, man, they have dignity and they have, I know, I'm just telling you as a kid, okay, there's respect, there's power, you, you can belong. I mean, when you're in the family, you're in the family, man. You're untouchable. You're protected. You've got money to blow on whatever you want. Ain't nobody going to mess with you. You've got a godfather, right? Anybody messes with you, they mess with him. And I started studying the mafia a little bit, mafia a little bit. And you know what? It's pretty hard to get in that family. And it's impossible to get out. <laughs> alive. You know what you have to do to get in the mafia family? Do you realize this? You have to do the will of the Don. You gotta do the bidding of the Godfather, the, the man up top, the top dog at the top of the family, whether it's a Genovese, uh, I can't even name all of them, Gambino, whatever, whatever all their names are, okay? There's always a dude up top, and everybody's protecting him, all right? Everybody's covering for him. You don't rat him out. You don't cross him. You don't betray him. You're not disloyal to him in any way. And to get in the family, you got to kill somebody. I mean, pretty much. you got to kill. If you want to be a son of the Godfather, somebody's got to die. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I watched a documentary just for this sermon. I watched like whole series on Netflix to study for sermons sometimes. <laughs> you had to do the will of the, of the Father, and you had to kill somebody. Somebody had to get whacked. And listen, once you're in the family, if you cross him or betray him, you get whacked. Can you imagine what, what drives people in the mafia? Power, lust, fear, control, manipulation, crime prostitution. It's racketeering. It's, it's off the charts crazy. But as a kid, I was just fascinated by it. Fascinated. And you read about the people that aren't necessarily in the, in the Italian-American families, but they want in, and they have to do like double to get in the family. And I started thinking, you know what? God's family is so different than that. It is so different than that. You want to be in God's family? Somebody's got to die. Is that right? Somebody's got to die for you to get in. For the Godfather to accept you, somebody's got to get whacked. You know what God did? Think about this. God sent his son to be away from his phone, to leave his family, to leave his lofty throne in heaven, to come down here and take the place of the person who was on the outside of the window staring in, saying, I just want to belong. I just want to be a part of what's going on in there so bad. And God says, it's going to cost somebody's life for you to come in here and be a part of this family. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. He sent his son. Hey, that's an offer you can't refuse right there, isn't it? That's what God did. He came and made you an offer you can't refuse. And listen, fear keeps people in the mafia family. You know what keeps people in God's family? Love. You're going to betray the father? Yeah, you will every single day. That's okay. He covers it. His death covers it. There's forgiveness. There's acceptance. There's no manip manipulation. There's no fear. Love covers all fear and casts all fear out, right? We know we have been forgiven much, and he who has been forgiven much loves much. That's the truth, ladies and gentlemen. That's the difference between God's kingdom, God's family, and every other family in the world. It's adoption. Yeah. 
When we read about adoption in the New Testament, do you realize, I think so often we, we take an American view of adoption and lay that as a template over the Bible. If you were a Roman citizen and you wanted to adopt somebody, do you realize that the reason you adopted somebody is because you were growing old and you had no heirs? You had no offspring to carry your family name, to inherit your riches, inherit your property. So you would find a young man that you admired and that you loved, and you would say, hey, I want to adopt you. Will you be in my family? And all the privileges and responsibilities, all the inheritance, all the wealth would go to that person. He would be accepted. He would have access to you. He would be protected. He'd be untouchable. All these metaphors that the Bible uses to try and tell us, listen, guys, we are not orphans. Jack Miller said that so well. We must live as children and not as orphans. An orphan, spiritually, is somebody that has been just estranged from the grace of God. They've forgotten the power of God's grace. We are children. We are in his family. He died to gain us entrance into his family. Nothing can change that. There's nothing you've ever done that could make God love you any less, and there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you anymore. Jesus left his family so that we could be a part of it. He became an outsider so that we could become an insider. It's interesting, in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus is in the garden, and the Roman soldiers and the Sanhedrin, they're coming with their flames and with their torches and with their weapons to arrest him, and he knows it. And he's praying, and he takes Peter and John aside, and he's talking with them. And Mark says that he records Jesus as saying this, Behold, my soul is in great distress and very troubled. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson that said that word troubled there, the root means to be far away from your home. Jesus knew he was about to be separated from his family, not his created family, not Mary, not his brothers, not his sisters. For the first and last time in eternity, Jesus knew he was about to be separated from his uncreated family. He was about to be separated from his father because God the Father was going to pour out his wrath on Christ so that we could be united to him. That's the beauty and the mystery of the gospel, guys. We don't do anything to get in this family. He does it all for us, and he delights to do it. Listen, we are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, but we are so loved and accepted. He was glad to do it. That's the beauty of the gospel, and that's what the family of God is all about. He made us an offer we can't refuse. It's the family you've always wanted, but you never deserved, and it's a free gift. It's a free gift. And I want to end with this. A little bit later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, you know, Peter, impetuous Peter, he said something to Jesus. He said, Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, Peter, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is promising us, those of us for whom life on this earth, family may be dysfunctional, maybe an elusive dream, maybe a place of pain. He is saying this, whoever suffers loss of family here now will get it back with interest because that's the way God's family works. That's the way his kingdom works. It's the family you always wanted. And it's a free gift of grace. By Christ, let's pray.